Hey, Clatchers. Welcome back. It's been a little bit since our last podcast. Big Little Lies ended, what, a month ago, maybe? But we haven't stopped podcasting. We're still over on Patreon doing our movie reviews, coffee break episodes, and bonus episodes. This is our favorite time of year for CKC Podcast. We are gearing up September and October to start all of the fun, scary stuff. In fact, our most recent bonus cast went over all about villains. Your top favorite villains, we ranked them all, what makes a good villain. And for our September movie review, we're going to be covering It 2. Thus, we felt it was only appropriate that we release It 1, the coverage that we did two years ago when this movie came out. Wow, time is flying by. So normally this would only be available to Patreon members, but we wanted to give you a little something fun in case you are prepping for the sequel and you want to go back and remember some of the specifics about the first one. This is our gift to you. Admittedly, we were not very advanced with our reviews yet at this time. We had a lot of sound issues. There's not as great of post-production and editing. So it's not going to sound the way it sounds right now. Uh, Unfortunately, but I think there's still some great tidbits in there. And I still think it's entertaining. Yes, we went over stats and fun facts as we normally do. We gave you some background and themes, talked about the Stephen King book and the translation to movie. We went through each of our characters, those in the Losers Club, Then we talked about all the major plot movements, what happened in the movie, and how it was different from the Stephen King book. And finally, we end, as we always do, with a rating, and in this case, an MVL, Most Valuable Loser, who won our awards. It's funny that the very last part of the podcast is talking about our thoughts on the sequel. And now the sequel's here, days away. Now in this podcast, I bring up Stand By Me, another Stephen King book. But I was talking in regards to the movie, and I called the book Stand By Me, but it's actually called The Body. That's correct. So now I can fix myself here. (laughs) So if you can get past some of the bumps in the road, we hope you would enjoy this. It gives you a little taste of what happens over on Patreon for CKC. As we said, there are different tiers. You can start out with the Coffee Break episodes, which are fun and interactive. We discuss what else we're watching in TV and movies. We have the bonus cast that go over really great topics. In one of our upcoming, we're going to be discussing the best in post-apocalyptic tales. I can't wait for that. And of course, you have the It Movies. If you join now, there is a full library with tons of podcasts that you can go back and listen to. And past a certain point, the audio and the quality does get a lot better. If you are into either post-apocalyptic or scary, we have covered Maze Runner 1, 2, and 3, A Cure for Wellness, and A Quiet Place in the past. And we just released Gerald's Game. Yes, and before that, the Book of Eli. So we've been on quite a run lately. So if you want to help Christina and myself out and join in on the fun, go on over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, Patreon-exclusive movie review. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And today we are reviewing It. It is a 2017 American supernatural horror film directed by Andy Muschietti, based on the 1986 novel of the same name by Stephen King. The screenplay is by Chase Palmer, Carrie Fukunaga, and Gary Doberman. The film tells the story of seven children in Derry, Maine, who are terrorized by the shape-shifting being It, only to face their own personal demons in the process. Rotten Tomatoes said it was well-acted and fiendishly frightening, with an emotionally affecting story at its core. It amplifies the horror in Stephen King's classic story without losing touch with its heart. So IMDb gave this an 8, Rotten Tomatoes an 85%, and Metacritic a 70. Well, they were spot on with that. What did you think about the movie? I thought that was about right. I had no familiarity with this story, believe it or not. I've read a lot of Stephen King, but never read it. Never saw the 90s miniseries of it. I sort of had a preconceived notion going in that I wasn't going to like it because I don't find the idea of clowns very scary. But then you showed me the preview for this version, and it did look (laughs) kind of frightening, really cool, like they were putting their own twist on it. I'll tell you what I liked. They didn't go to the classic horror movie slash and gore bump in the night. There was a little bit of that going on. But they focused a lot more on the group of kids. Their relationship with each other felt a little stand-by-me, a little stranger things, which I really enjoy. And they went into their own personal traumas and histories going on within their childhoods and their homes. And that was how it manifested. It was a clown, but you usually saw it in the shape of what terrified them. Right. And that, I thought, was really cool. 
Yeah, I have to agree with you. First of all, the Clatchers know I hate scary movies, but I was intrigued by this trailer, and I was willing to go to this one. It did have a Stand By Me, Stranger Things, even Goonies kind of feel to Mm. it. Now, Stand By Me is a Stephen King novel, and Stephen King often goes back to childhood and what you go through on that moment when you become an adult, the trials and tribulations when life gets real. I think he was probably affected by something when he was young and growing up. This did have a Stand By Me feel for sure, and that didn't bother me at all. I mean, it had the same thing, a group of kids. It wasn't just that deep. It went as deep as one child had an abusive parent, Uh, Another child had something bad happen to their family and the parents were very affected by it. And actually the child was almost uh, didn't have his parents because of that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of trauma, loss, bullying. I mean, there's really big bullying for sure. Child issues here. I have to give my father a shout out because Stand By Me was one of his favorites. And he had us watch it when we were younger. And I really thought they depicted the idea of friendship at that age so accurately. And also the need to kind of quest, to go on an adventure and and accomplish something. So in Stand By Me, it was their travels looking for the dead body. And here it was to save their friends and go up against a monster. It's always so epic and yet perfectly descriptive of what you think you're going to accomplish at that age. For sure. And then they leave the movie grownups in one manner or They've gone through a lot. They have a new outlook on life, and they venture off into adulthood from that point on. And you usually don't get to see that aftermath. So the digging we've done, I guess the original book switched back and forth between perspectives, them starting out as adults and then flashing back to the memories of childhood and what they did or something along those lines. Yeah. 1,500-page book, over 1,500 pages. There was a lot in there, and I'm surprised they were even able to get this much in the movie. We'll go through it later, but there, there was a lot taken out from the books, even just the childhood part of the books. But I think, first of all, that's probably why the original adaptation for screen was a miniseries. But second of all, this is an issue we have all the time when you're trying to take words from a page that can be way more descriptive, can be as long as it wants, and try to fit it into two hours. Well, but here it actually makes sense because they were preparing the whole time to do a sequel. So the first movie would be about their childhood, and the second one supposedly is going to be them coming back as adults. They will have a chance to tackle some of that extra information. But yeah, adaptation, it's always tricky, and I'm kind of happy that I don't know the source material. I was able to go into it with a fresh perspective and just enjoy the movie for what it was. We talked about it in the bonus cast, our remembrance of this and how scary it was. I have to be honest with you, I was picturing a different scary movie from when I was a child. Now, this probably happens often from memories of childhood. The movie, and I couldn't find it, I tried to find it. All I could Google was clowns horror movie in a circus. I couldn't find it. Basically, the one I was thinking about was a bunch of bad clowns, and they were part of a circus, and they took over. Yeah, that's a, I can't think of the title. That is a different one. That was scary as hell. I never saw the TV miniseries, believe it or not. Well, so it's not just us. This did phenomenally at the box office. Opening weekend, it made $123 million U.S., setting the records for the largest opening weekend for both a September release and a horror film in general. And it was the second biggest debut for any rated R film behind Deadpool, which made 132. That's amazing because Deadpool was a record. And now we have a new record. Not only that, Variety and Deadline both noted that the opening weekend could have been even greater if not for Hurricane Irma shutting down nearly 50% of Florida's theaters because that's a state that typically accounts for 5% of the country's box office gross. So it's Lewis's fault. (laughs) (laughs) As of two days ago, the movie has earned $266 million in the U.S. box office and $478 million worldwide. And that's just three weeks of release. Talk about money well earned. Not only that, do you know what the budget was to make the movie? Thirty-five million. I mean, that's a huge yeah. turnaround. And like we said, usually horror movies don't do that great, grossing at the box office. Of course, there's a few outliers as far as horror movies go, but we're talking in general. What's crazy is Deadpool had a very small budget as well. So this just goes to show, it's just two examples, but I can say this goes to show that you don't need to put a lot of money to make a hit. 
And oftentimes, if there's too much money to be spent, that's when the director ends up making mistakes because he has too much money to waste. It's not the first time we've reviewed a movie with a small budget that did a lot with what they had to offer. I'm thinking about Maze Runner. Runner. And there was also a lot of struggles first starting out, so it turned hands a bunch of times. First, the Duffer brothers originally wanted to direct it, but they were overlooked as they weren't quote-unquote established enough. So, as you all will know, they went on to create Stranger Things, which, funny enough, co-stars Finn Wolfhard, who plays Richie in this movie. Yep. And pays homage to Stephen King. This movie, just like Stranger Things, the child cast was phenomenal. Hmm. You can win or lose a whole movie with a cast of children. And both movies nailed it. Well, not just some of them. Every single child in this group of the Losers Club had a distinct identity kind of background. I'll get into that. Some of them were a little more fuzzy, and I understand we only have so much time, so we couldn't focus on it, but it was pretty well fleshed out. Well, then after that, Carrie Fukunaga was set to direct, but dropped out due to production budget and a difference in artistic vision, including what the intended MPAA rating would be. So it was rated R, so I'm wondering if he wanted it to be PG-13. Normally, it's the opposite. I'm the not studio sure, wants yeah. it to be PG-13, and... The director's like, it's got to be rated R. I want to be able to do this. Well, I know there was a lot of differences in what was going to be taken out from the book, what was going to be put in. There were some scenes that they wanted to put in there. Even Muschietti had originally planned to include the smoke hole scene. So if you haven't read the books, and I haven't, we're not going to be as familiar, but I did read about it. This is a scene where Richie and Mike use a Native American tradition to have a vision that details how it arrived on Earth millions of years ago. So it's kind of like the origin stories within the book of how it came to be. Yeah, in that hallucination, they depicted a turtle creating Earth. Kind of reminiscent, I thought, of the magicians. Yeah, that's amazing. I guess due to the extensive CGI that they needed for this scene, it was deemed too expensive for the film, and he was forced to cut it. Muschietti did give a little wink-wink to people in the know, They actually had a turtle depicted in the movie and even said turtle. (laughs) Now, I do have to say, we think it's pronounced Muschietti. It's spelled like that. It may be the wrong one, and I apologize if it is. Uh, Some more fun facts. Some of the filming for this took place in Port Hope, which is Ontario, Canada. That was also the filming location for another Stephen King miniseries, Storm of the Century. My second favorite Stephen King adaptation, coming in first, will always be The Stand. Loved the book, the, I don't know if it was a TV miniseries. It was almost like a movie in parts. Wasn't it like nine episodes of two hours or something like that? It was over two hours, I think, each one. So here's a fun tidbit. In an interview, Bill Skarsgård, who plays Pennywise in this version, recounted a scene he shot where he had to scare a large group of children. When he first walked onto the set in full costume and makeup, some kids were intrigued, some were scared, one started shaking. After the scene was shot, though, all the kids were crying due to how scary his performance was. Skarsgård admitted that he felt extremely guilty about this and apologized to all the child actors after the camera stopped rolling, ensuring them that the whole thing was just pretend. He did an amazing job. Yes, he was helped by being in the year 2017 where we have the technical ability to make him look that way, but they managed to make the scariest clown face in the world. And you can't even tell that it's Skarsgård under there. Well, and Muschietti went on and on about how amazing he was, and they had a lot of talented actors in the running, we'll get into that in just a few minutes, to play Pennywise. And many of them were able to do the creepy, scary side really well, But he said Skarsgård was the only one who was also able to convey at times that childlike quality, the innocence. Yeah, for sure. And so he brought the duality to the equation, which was really what he was looking for. And talk about scary. But what's crazy about him is he was scary to watch, scary to look at, but also very intriguing. I didn't want to divert my eyes. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the costuming. And they talked about how they pulled from different eras, Victorian, Elizabethan. They created that collar like thing that he wears around his neck, but they put their own spin on all of it. I mean, a lot of thought went into how they were going to present him this time around. Yeah. If you take a look at it, the picture of him, you know, it's kind of difficult to think about it. They have a lot of movie renditions of 
similar clownish figures, right? You have the original Pennywise. You have the Joker, right? Because this is very Joker-esque. You have, ooh, one of the most scary ones from American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Remember that clown? Yeah. That was creepy. And you have this one, so simplistic but beautiful. One, making his hair still crazy but also going bald. Yeah. Very cool. It, it has a human quality to him. And then those red lines that go from the ends of his, and that's very Joker-esque, ends of his lips, but then goes up past his eyes. And then they have the buck teeth. I want to come back to, though, it's really interesting that you brought up both of those references when they asked Bill Skarsgård about how he was going to go into portraying this character. Muschietti said you've had Ledger doing almost a clown joker. You've obviously seen Tim Curry as a clown. We wanted someone who created a Pennywise character that would stand on its own. Bill came in and really created that character and frankly freaked us out. And Skarsgård himself said, you know, nobody's going to do Pennywise like Tim Curry. So I don't even want to try to do it like him. I want to do it totally different. That's how Heath Ledger said too for the Joker. The cast and crew have a lot to say about Skarsgård and so does Stephen King. My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. That all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing. An evil thing. Creating Pennywise with Bill Skarsgård was very fulfilling. He's unpredictable. And it was something that caught my attention immediately. I wanted to create something unsettling. This feeling that you never know what's going to happen when the clown's around. Bill, if you come with me, you'll float too. His body language and the madness in his look was completely unnerving. Andy successfully kept Bill. Pennywise away from the kids as long as possible. We wanted to keep him away because we wanted the reaction to be real. It is authentic to how kids should be reacting. And that was one of Andy's things in terms of scaring the kids, having them not know what our Pennywise is going to look like. Look, that's where it lives. The first time we saw him all together was the projector scene. What happened? Bill? It got our real reactions. I was so freaked out. It was terrifying. He's just so sporadic. You don't know what he's going to do. When he's up close in your face screaming at you, it's insane. Like a demonic animal. Bill Skarsgård is Pennywise. He did us all proud. Having Stephen King's seal of approval is amazing. So I do hope the fans will feel the same way. So how about that? The cast and crew. Did you notice in the beginning that was Andy Muschietti talking? Mm -hmm. He sounded like Hannibal. Oh, a little bit. Right? They're all creepy. Killing must feel good to God, too. He does it all the time. And are we not created in his image? A little bit. I, yeah, this was amazing. Such a good summary and no higher praise than getting Stephen King's stamp of approval. I actually read, though, there was a lot of issues with the fact that they were keeping Skarsgård completely isolated from the rest of cast and crew most of the time, and that he was feeling lonely and even a little depressed, that emotionally, A, you have to get into character and put yourself in this place, and then B, you're just cut off from everybody else, so it got to be kind of difficult for him during filming. I can imagine. You have to go to a dark place, first of all, and then also you're isolated, so you don't have that reprieve when the cameras aren't filming and then you're on screen scaring the crap out of all of these kids that you're working (laughs) with and apparently all of the child actors said as much as they were prepared for it and told about the costuming and the makeup 
they were still legitimately afraid, except for Sophia Lillis, who played Bev, and she actually laughed. Really? When she saw him for the first time. Yeah, but that laugh could have been a nervous laugh. I think she's like a scary movie type of person, maybe like myself. But this was cute, too. They asked the whole cast of the Losers Club who they wanted to play their adult counterparts in the sequel. And not only is it cute who they chose, but I think it's really fitting. Like, you could see that being the adult version of them. Finn Wolfhard, who plays Richie, said Bill Hader. Sophia Lillis, who plays Bev, said Jessica Chastain, who does kind of look like an older Beverly. Chosen Jacobs, who plays Mike, said Chadwick Boseman. Jack Dylan Grazer, who plays Eddie, said Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Wyatt Olaf, who plays Stan, said Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And can't you just see that, too? Jeremy Ray Taylor, who plays Ben, said Chris Pratt. And Jaden Lieberherb, who plays Bill, said Christian Bale. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a dream cast, huh? That would be incredible to see. Yeah, but I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to go for a lot of nobodies. More unknowns. Uh, unknowns is a better way to say yeah. it, yeah. All right, before we move on, I have one more fun fact. There was an Easter egg in here, kind of. The movie posters that they show in the background. So, for instance, when the kids are walking by the theater and you see the marquee for what's playing, show us the passage of time throughout the summer of 1989. First, you had Batman, which came out in June of 89. Then Lethal Weapon 2, which was July. And then A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which was August. So if you were paying attention, you could kind of track the progression of the movie. The late 80s, early 90s is really in fad right now, huh? I think it's because the adults now, us, Mm -hmm. who go to the movies, were very nostalgic for that time frame. The original It took place in the 50s. And when they were adults, it was in the 80s. So what they did is they flipped the script. It was the same thing. In the 80s as children... And the sequel, for them being adults, is going to be, I guess, now, or maybe early 2000s. Yeah, probably relatively close, I would say, to present day. I'm not sure exactly how old they're supposed to be. Like, this is going to follow the storyline of the book, the time frame, when they go back to it. But we're going to definitely talk more about the sequel and what we know so far later. For now, Jason, I'm going to do my typical trivia questions. And this is probably going to be guessing, unless you've researched it, I'm not sure. But I only have three. And the first two are related to Pennywise. So any guesses on who was the first actor chosen to play Pennywise? Well, that I do know. You do? It's Tim Curry from Clue. No, I mean for this version. Oh, not the the, original. No, no, no. The 2017, like which actor were they first considering before they went to Bill Skarsgård? That I do not know. I'm going to guess Jared Leto. No, that's a good guess. I love him, and I could see him doing a great job with it. You're going to be surprised by who it was. And I think they even offered it to him, but he had scheduling conflicts. It's actually Will Poulter. Oh, the one from Maze Runner. Yeah. Well, that would have been challenging for him, but I could see him kind of bringing that dualistic thing to it. He was chosen when it was being directed by Fukunaga. Another trivia question I got wrong. Well, that was a total guess. This one you might know. Number two, Bill Skarsgård. Apparently acting runs in his blood. He has a couple of famous relatives. Do you know who any of them are? Yes, he has a brother. Uh, He plays in True Blood. He was in Big Little Lies. He was jacked in Tarzan. Good job, yep. Alexander. Absolutely, that's his older brother. And I know he has a father, and I don't remember that name. Yep, he's got a father. His name is Stellan. He's been acting since 1968. He starred in Goodwill Hunting. Oh. And he's got a younger brother, Walter, Walter, who is in a TV series in Denmark. So okay. probably nothing you would know him for, but also a famous actor. You can see at least Alexander in Bill, but that's because I, I know what Alexander looks like. He probably looks like... His other brother as well. I just don't know what he looks like. Yeah, there's a similarity. But that accent really works well for Pennywise. Okay, and your final question. What is the tagline for this movie? Hi, Georgie. (laughs) No, but that's close. No, it has to do with Georgie. Um, You can float too. You can float too. Yep, yep. You'll float too. You'll float too. Good job. Well, you nailed it this time. Let's move on to talking about our characters. We have quite a few, so I guess we'll try to kind of go through them quickly, but they are important to discuss. 
First, you have William Denborough, who goes by Bill. They all have shortened names, and that's kind of how we know them in the movie. He's played by Jaden Lieberher, and he's the leader of the Losers Club. He speaks with a stutter and is seeking answers to the disappearance of his younger brother, Georgie. Hi, Georgie. Then you have George Denborough, played by Jackson Robert Scott, the innocent, energetic seven-year-old brother of Bill. And he did such a good job. He really did. Especially in the scenes where he is Pennywise. he's manifesting as it. Yeah. You know, and he's got to play that really creepy. I mean, this is a young child actor portraying that. Very well done. Very creepy. And the star of the show, Pennywise, the dancing clown, an ancient trans-dimensional evil that awakens every 27 years. A shapeshifter who takes the appearance of whatever frightens you. And I think we've talked at length about Bill Skarsgård. Then we have the infamous Richard Ritchie Tozier, played by Finn Wolfhard, famous as Mike Wheeler in Stranger Things. Here he plays the trash mouth, the bespectacled friend with the loud mouth. Yeah, and that's his real nickname. They're constantly calling him trash mouth. I love him, and I love the scene where he finally stands up to it. Yeah. There's Stanley, or Stan Uris, played by Wyatt Olaf, who's a Jewish misophobe studying for his bar mitzvah though not hard enough to the disappointment of his father, who's a rabbi. Moving on to Edward Eddie Kasprak, played by Jack Dylan Grazer, a hypochondriac whose overbearing mother has convinced him he's a sickly boy. He only feels truly well when he's with his friends. I know we're going to talk about how it manifests to each of these children, but that's a situation where I thought we could have gone maybe even a little further with his backstory. I loved seeing what was going on with that overbearing mother that was sort of keeping him ill and making him think there were all these things wrong with him. But why was she like that? I guess that could go on forever, right? But it made me curious. I do want to go into that. Remind me to talk about the parents. But also there's one thing to note. I'm sure that a lot of the Clatchers don't remember these kids' names. And that's one of the issues I had with this movie. Hmm. They didn't have enough time to really flesh them out completely. Their backstories, uh, us really getting to know them and feeling for them, besides the two main characters, William and Beverly. Yeah, you, you kind of know them for the labels that are put on them, right? Unfortunately. So I remember him not as Eddie, but as the hypochondriac. Right. We have Benjamin Ben Hanscom, played by Jeremy Ray Taylor, an overweight kid who is new to the school and doesn't have friends. Spends a lot of time in the library and being bullied by the Bowers until he joins the Losers Club. I can empathize with that character because when I was his age, I was very fat as well. They called me Jelly Roll. Then I hit puberty, got into sports, and was very aware of never wanting to get to that weight again. I definitely know what he was going through. When I loved his character and how they did go more in depth with him, it wasn't just the fact that he was dealing with being the overweight kid. But I felt like they started to develop him and then kind of dropped it a little bit. This affection that he felt for Bev that was kind of displaced when Bill started to like her. Him standing up to the bullies. And I'm not sure maybe that's something they're going to kind of delve more into in the sequel. But So yeah, you have Beverly Bev Marsh, played by Sophia Lillis, the only female member of the Losers Club. She is also bullied at school and falsely accused of being promiscuous. She has a violent and sexually abusive father, Alvin Marsh, played by Stephen Bogart. And I thought she was an incredible actress. I was constantly forgetting how young she probably is in real life. She's really able to portray this maturity. And very dark backstory. I guess that went even more gruesome and in-depth in the books. And thankfully we were kind of spared some of those details. And we have Michael Hanlon, played by Chosen Jacobs a homeschooled boy who was orphaned in a fire and is being raised on his grandfather Leroy's farm. He relays the incidents of Derry's past to his friends. Yeah, he was a little bit of the exposition character, right? He comes in later on and he has this knowledge of the events that have taken place over the years in Derry. But it was done in a way that didn't bother me. I really felt like he was an independent character of that. And he also had this terrible backstory about his parents dying in a fire and... So that's how it presents itself to him. And finally, you have Henry Bowers, played by Nicholas Hamilton, a young sociopath who leads the Bowers Gang, a group of high school thugs who terrorize the Losers Club. His sidekicks, Vic and Belch, are usually with him, and they don't really have a story, but I guess they they kind of did in the books as well, and 
yet again that was more gruesome with the sadistic acts they engaged in, but I thought it was hard enough to watch yeah. with what we were seeing with Henry. This must have been very difficult for Andy Muschietti because he had to get us aware of every kid and what their backgrounds were and what scared them the most in life to make us understand why Pennywise was transforming into these creatures or monsters. And he actually had to change some of the monsters for this movie. But although a little bit shallow at times, I don't see a better way of doing it. Well, that's way deeper than it was portrayed in the book, where apparently so they're children from the 1950s. The incarnations of the monsters were mainly from famous movies. Here, he's trying to bring out the deeper fears based on their own childhood traumas. Much more interesting, for sure. And much more scary. And actually makes sense if you're talking about adolescence and what you go through growing up and trying to become an adult. And starting to face those things. Yeah. All right, let's jump into the plot. We open in October 1988, where Bill gives his seven-year-old brother Georgie a sailboat made from paper. As Bill is sick, Georgie goes outside alone to take the boat into the street, but he's unable to stop it from sailing down a storm drain. There he finds a man who introduces himself as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. The clown proceeds to sever Georgie's arm when he reaches into the drain for the boat before dragging him into the sewer. Very gruesome. And I have to say, the first quarter of this movie was very scary for me. Very horror kind of movie. But the balance of the children's backstories and having Pennywise so often on screen, which horror movies don't really do that often. It's mainly you see them every so often. It's and when you do, it's... Them. Yeah. And there has been there has been some complaints from people saying that it was almost too much Pennywise. By the time the towards the end of the movie came, you were so used to him, he wasn't scary you anymore. You were desensitized. I disagree. I do too. I, I thought it was great because he was the main part of this movie, and the director managed to balance that. Again, I just said this, but he managed to balance that with the storyline of the children. So this part was very scary and, and beautifully done. It was a little bit of a disappointment to me because the entire movie I was waiting for another scene like this. I, I see. do yeah. think it was the scariest part in there because it showed you anything could happen. It was like the season finale of season one Game of Thrones where they killed Ned. And you're like, holy shit. <laughs> They could take anyone from us at any time. They so suddenly and brutally mar this kid and they just pull him off screen and start right up with the regular storyline. So that really kind of disturbed me. And nothing after that felt like it reached quite that level. But I do agree that most films have to kind of hide the villain or the scary thing from you. Because by the time you see it, it's nothing like what you're picturing in your imagination. Right. Your mind can always create something far worse. Plus, the acting is not that good either. This <laughs> was still scary to me. No matter, I mean, it wasn't frightening me, okay? It takes a lot to really scare me. I was actually more disturbed by the scenes that were going into the childhood backgrounds. Um, but it legitimately looked great visually. I, I agree wholeheartedly. There were some scary moments and there were some bump in the nights where I literally jumped but I always jump <laughs> and you always laugh at me. But there was some beautifully done art moments in there. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when he gets out of the fridge or when he's a child and then turns into Pennywise the grown up, mm. the way they do that visually, I was so intrigued. The basement scenes were always scary. Yeah. When he became Georgie, I have a thing about <laughs> when the little kids go nuts. That yeah. gets to me. I know they were limited by time. One of my big problems that I'm going to bring up is I think we needed to establish the Bill-Georgie relationship a little more. They did a great job in that one brief scene showing how much they loved each other and Bill making this boat for him. But if the entire movie is going to hinge upon Georgie being taken so soon and Bill rallying his entire friend group going up against this incredibly evil, dangerous thing to find his younger brother... Emotionally, that's going to pull on my heartstrings more mm. if I see that brotherly relationship. And I'm thinking about how poignant they did it, how quickly, and I won't say too much because I don't want to ruin it if you haven't seen it yet, the first episode of The Good Doctor. Oh my goodness. The brotherly relationship that's established there in a very short period of time. Yeah. So something a little more along those lines. I did want to bring up The Good Doctor from our bonus episode. 
you'll notice that I did say the good doctor is on on Sundays, and then you heard me swear because I knew I was wrong. It's Mondays. It's Mondays. <laughs> so sorry about that. You only missed one episode. It's worth watching. So far, so good. Amazing. Oh, I want to say more, but we'll wait till the bonus. Let's get back to our next scene in this movie, where it's eight months later, in June 1989. Bill and his friends, Richie, Eddie, and Stan, run afoul of bully Henry Bowers and his gang. Bill, still haunted by Georgie's disappearance and the resulting neglect from his grief-stricken parents, discovers his brother's body may have been washed up in a marshy wasteland called the Barrens. Um, I don't think that even quite does it, because for a while, he's still convinced he could be alive. Yes. And that he's just gone missing. They get into later the fact that even he knows this is probably denial, but he needs to hold on to something. Yeah. And that's very well illustrated in the scene between him and his father where he's trying to build. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. That, that, scene. that system that will show. A lot of work. The sewer system. Yeah, and look, this is where he'll be dumped out. And the it father still just be there. can't deal with it. I'm going to say it now because I'll forget. There's a few things that bother me with this movie. One of which was, I didn't understand this town. They didn't give us enough description of what this town's about. And what I mean by that is, all the adults feel like they're part of a horror movie. They're twisted in some way. We have a molester. We have Bill's father, who is just emotionally stunted now. We have the hypochondriac mom. We have, I mean, I can go on and on. There's no human in this movie that you can say is a normal person. normal. Or that yeah, you can well, depend on. I think it's amplified, of course. I, I think it is representative of what so many kids go through at home silently that we don't get to see inside of kind of like every family has their shit. And um, there's always some dysfunction somewhere there. Uh, yeah, but this but is they just, they took it to the extreme yeah. in order. It's just like the kids how they have the extreme labels put on them because we need to get a backstory very quickly. So Eddie's the hypochondriac and his mom is the overbearing mom. That, in a very short period of time, sets the stage for us to know about him without having to spend a lot of extra filming going in depth behind that. And then my last thing, and again, I know I'm jumping forward here. We have so many deaths of children throughout this movie (laughs) and the town's not freaking out. There's not like... Uh, did you see a policeman, like the head sheriff or something, talking to the town like, we're trying to figure this out, please don't worry. All we saw was a sign that said that there was a curfew. That's yeah, it. well, and then they have the acknowledgments by the missing posters, which mm-hmm. they keep pasting up the new ones over the old ones. And I don't know if maybe because this is supposed to be from the kid's point of view, we just don't see those things occurring. Oh, okay. I can see that. You know, that's not where their focus is. And maybe we will hear about that later when they're adults. That makes me feel better. I like that. And then I have a third one that I'll ask later. (laughs) Okay. So after this, Bill recruits his friends to check out the Barons, believing that they could do something about this. Simultaneously, Bev meets Ben, who has recently moved to Derry. During his time at the library, Ben learns the town has been plagued by unexplained tragedies and child disappearances for centuries. He then encounters a burnt headless boy in his basement and runs into Henry's violent gang. And he flees into the barrens where he meets Bill's group. So a lot of quick stuff with Ben here. I thought his encounter with Bev was really sweet. It's another instance with him at the library that could have felt like exposition, but it didn't. The way he's learning about the background, it turned into its own horror scene for him Mm -hmm. with that Easter egg hunt. And then, my goodness, Mm -hmm. the scene with him and the Bowers gang. It it was twisting my stomach into knots watching that. Whenever I see movies where there's a gang of kids that are being bullies, I just... Oh, I want to punch him in the face. Oh, but this was really, like you were saying, to the extreme. These kids were psychopaths. He's yeah. carving things into his stomach. And by the way, we like kind of just bandage him up and never go back <laughs> to that. Ben goes through a lot of stuff that's just overlooked or quickly brushed past. I feel like he'd be really not... I mean, I know they go get supplies for him later and whatever, but that was pretty bad. <laughs> Uh, The group then finds the sneaker of the missing girls, and one of the members of the Bowers gang, Patrick, is killed by Pennywise inside the sewer system. And I do believe his death was also different in the books. And the next day, this is where 
kind of a big chunk of the movie goes on because we see each child have their own nightmarish encounter with Pennywise. So they don't all happen at one time or in this order, but we can go through it. Uh, Bill sees him as Georgie, his younger brother, and so I guess this is what he most fears dealing with that loss. Um, Trashmouth sees him as a clown because clowns are what scares him most. Yeah. I didn't like that. No? His character is... Yeah, it's one that we're most connected to. We really enjoy him. And it's like we couldn't think of anything, so it's just going to be a clown. Well, I guess they had to have a reason for Pennywise to look like a clown. Well, maybe. I wonder if that comes from the original story, that that's one of the kids' fears. Anyhow, you have Stan... Another one that's a little suspect, the painting on his father's wall. How does that correspond with what he's dealing with in his home life? Just because it was in his father's office? Well, it's in his father's office and he's a child. Did you ever have a painting that really freaked you out when you went to your grandparents' house or something? There was a painting in my grandma's house in Brooklyn. She had a very old, very large home. And there was a painting that was just scary as all get out. And then she had dolls. Like old school dolls that were glass or not glass. Porcelain. Porcelain. Freaked me out. So I think it's just playing off of that. I guess so. But I thought it was supposed to tie into their personal struggle. So they made an effort to show that his struggle was with his father because he wasn't studying hard enough for this the bar mitzvah and i guess because it was in his father's office where the books were it kind of ties in but it was just a little weird i wonder if that painting has some significance that we don't know well it definitely does to muschetti who based this sequence on the paintings of modigliani one of which hung in his own childhood home and he found frightening interpreting the stylization as monstrosity there you go kind of like what you're saying that's just from his own trauma And apparently the woman in the portrait is named Judith, in case you were wondering. Eddie, the hypochondriac, sees it as the leper. And again, that could have been great. I didn't immediately get that he was supposed to be a leper. I think one of the kids even called him a homeless man at one point. Yeah, I didn't get that one either. That one did not make sense to me. So if I guess maybe this translated fine for some people. That does really add up with his fear of sickness, Mm -hmm. this guy who's flesh is just rotting away Uh, maybe visually it just didn't hit the right notes for me i don't know maybe he should have said something to the kid about this disease that he has in a a creepy way like or if he was trying to touch him yeah like he was gonna get germs on him yeah that would have been scary my father had these warts on his face and it just kept getting worse and then one day he sneezed on me and now i've got (laughs) okay that's not scary (laughs) i fucked it up Of course, we got Ben, who sees the dead of the Easter egg hunt. I'm sorry. Now I'm all, all I'm seeing is him like, I'm going to sneeze on you. And then like running after I ruined it. But you know what I was getting at, right? Yeah. So um, coming back to Ben, I, that doesn't really tie into his personal journey either. Yes, he's the one who was kind of in the library and into investigating things, but really as a solace because he had nowhere else to go and no friends. Um, And furthermore, other than the fact that he feels isolated, we don't know a ton about what's going on with him. No. Well, then you got Mike, or homeschool as we know him, and, you know, that's the burnt bodies from the trauma of his past with his parents. And finally, Bev, who I guess just the blood in the sink drain. Well, that depicts the fact that Bev is afraid of maturing, and the blood was her menstruation that I thought was actually really good. And the, the fear of the home life and what's going on with her father. And you even had the hair coming out of there, which was very symbolic because that's part of what made her beautiful and her mm-hmm. attempt to kind of alter that when she was cutting it off. So I liked that. It was, I guess it was just uh, the execution again with like the voices coming out of the drain right before that. Yeah, and, that was different. Um, I don't know their, their whole cleanup scene later. The cleanup scene was weird, right? It's just, it was mis- slightly misfiring yeah. for me. Well, I didn't really put two and two together till later that the reason why she was scared of that is because her father does not want her to mature mm-hmm. because he feels that's him losing control of her. Yeah. She's becoming a woman then yeah. in that event. And going back to the book, I think there was some notion that his friends or people he knew were also abusing her. 
and that's why there were rumors around town that she was promiscuous. I don't really have the whole story. I'm going based off of stuff I did in research, but there's a lot more, I think, going on with her that they weren't able to get to. You know what they should have done? With the voices or instead of the voices, uh, before the blood comes up, she should see something hanging from the faucet coming out instead of water and then she grabs it and pulls it and it's a handkerchief that keeps going you know like a clown's handkerchief like a clown yeah that would have been cool yeah and then when she finally pulls it out that's when the blood starts coming Mm. that would have been cool because it it puts the clown in there yeah this really had nothing to do with I think they were trying to stay as much away from the clown believe Mm. it or not as they could like he comes up but they tried not to overdo it because for instance, the scene where he comes out of the movie projector was a little weird. Yeah. I mean, it wound up being scary in the end, but it was kind of difficult to make that work. Coming back to Bev, you, you have the cleanup scene, and then later you have the scene where they're all just kind of hanging out together on the rocks. When they go jump in the water, they go swimming, and then they come back up later and they're laying in the sun. Yeah. And she's just got her bra on and all the boys are looking at her. <laughs> and I think these two scenes, they were trying to establish the group taking her in, her becoming one of them, and them also feeling a little protective of her. They're attracted to her. She's the pretty girl, but she's become one of them. That also feels like maybe an attempt to avoid the apparent weird orgy scene from That's the book. Right. I don't understand. I, obviously, I haven't read the books. I don't understand how you would fit an orgy scene in this storyline. I don't either. Now I, I feel like I have to go read them so I get what it's about. But maybe they were trying to find a way to get to those same beats without, let's say, having an orgy scene. Right, maybe. All right, later, Bill and his friends discover Henry's gang beating up Mike, homeschool. They chase the bullies off and befriend Mike. Throwing rocks, literal rocks, chucking them. These kids are just vicious. A few weeks later, the group who now refer to themselves as the Losers Club come to realize they are each being terrorized by the same entity. This is where they finally determine that it's it. It takes the appearance of what they fear, and it awakens every 27 years to feed on the children, and then apparently returns to hibernation and moves about using the sewer system. This system is built around Derry's well, and on top of that is the house, 29 Ebolt Street. So they go there. They try to investigate. During that time, Eddie breaks his arm by falling through the floor, Ugh. and Pennywise emerges. Well, the wall, the floor kind of disappears on him. Yeah. Definitely Pennywise. There was kind of a haunted house feel to that Yeah, when they were going through rooms and doors were closing and... So again, cool play on the clown thing without going right at it in an obvious manner. And a picture right before that was a picture of Eddie and a missing children, mm, missing that child. That was scary. Yeah. That, free, that was the first time we see Eddie really freaked out because he's kind of been one of the more brave, confident ones. Yeah, and that's also the first time that Bill brings up the fact that he's just trying to scare you. And that's when I started to realize... Oh, he's working off of fear. Mm-hmm. You can put the pieces together. Well, at the end of this scene, Bev impales it through the head, forcing the clown to retreat. That was crazy. It was really good, but also it causes the group to begin to splinter. I think this encounter, they're all really scared. Richie, Stan, and Mike abandon the others when Bill insists that they continue to hunt it. These whole scenes, I really enjoyed it. There was... Okay, it was kind of scary at, at parts, but the rest, again, was very intriguing to watch. It wasn't like the typical scary house. And what Pennywise was doing, I really enjoyed because it's different from other horror movies. You go into a haunted house, you come to expect a few things. Yes, Bill did walk into a room full of clowns. That was mm-hmm. scary. But the whole with the way with the covering yeah, them. Yeah. But I enjoyed it, and mm-hmm. it did give me that creepy feeling. And then. Penny coming from behind it. And the coffin. Playing piano and jumping and going right towards him. That was awesome. Yeah, but like you were saying, deeper than that, there's a level of psychological torture that he's doing to them by becoming what they fear the most and creating more and more fear he can feed off of. That's a really dark yeah. theme. And he's getting more and more powerful as he does it. Mm-hmm. So then we get the idea that there's a cut, there's a break in time that we don't see where the group is 
sort of fractured and so nothing much is happening until one day in August where Beverly manages to incapacitate her father when he attempts to rape her. She's abducted by Pennywise and Bill reassembles the losers to mount a rescue. Simultaneously, it also compels Henry to murder his abusive father before going after the losers. Yeah, Pennywise compels him. (laughs) Sorry. And that that was a really dark juxtaposition you get, the the two abusive fathers and kind of the two sides of the coin. So Henry has turned out with a lot of problems of his own, and this is kind of the last straw. He's barely hanging on by a thread. We see him trying to kill animals in the scene with the cat earlier. Apparently that cat scene in the books is way more gruesome. Isn't By there the some way. kind of masturbation uh, thing surrounding I that? I don't know. But this does remind me, yes, there are cops in this movie. It's his father. The psycho father. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is like the last thing. He snaps and now he's off to go kill the losers. So Pennywise does not kill Henry. Instead, he recruits him. So this is a little different mm-hmm. for Pennywise. You could say he recruits him, or you could say he just drove him over the edge, mm. and psychologically, he's he's done now. He snapped. I'm not sure. Maybe a little of both. Either way, he chases them to the Niebold house, where the group has convened. He attacks Mike, and Mike pushes Henry down the well, where he falls to his death. This is where they find its lair in an underground cooling tower, containing a mountain of decaying circus props and children's belongings. There, Beverly is in a catatonic state after Pennywise exposed her to its true form. With the mouth and all that? Is this, like, something happens when he stares at them and they just become catatonic and float? I don't know. I don't understand that. That happened so quickly, I couldn't quite grasp what he was doing to them. Pennywise isn't really explained on those depths. I'll go to my third issue now. I don't understand what he's doing there. What is his motivation? Why every 27 years, Mm -hmm. and why does he have to kill these people, these kids? What is he getting out of it? I thought maybe he was eating them for food, but he's not eating them. What happens when he hibernates? And why is he hibernating? Is there still a certain amount of energy left in these kids that he takes them and they stay there, and while he's in hibernation, he can kind of continue to feed off of them, perhaps? Are these just guesses? So he feeds off of fear, so maybe he puts them in in a catatonic phase frozen in fear and then he can just use them as batteries or maybe they could still dream and he's giving them nightmares i mean there's a Hmm. lot of ways this could be going but yeah they flew through that really quick and so we're just sort of left going wait why are they floating and we know this is a thing he's been talking about them floating the whole movie but you can float too Anyway, Ben quickly realizes the answer to this is to kiss her, apparently, restoring her to consciousness, which is a little weird. A little too on the nose. Yeah, yeah. And then it appears to Bill as Georgie, but fails to trick him. Very cool scene, though. Yeah, Bill finally realizes what's going on. He shoots it, but it only angers him. And Pennywise attacks the group and takes Ben hostage, offering to spare the others if they allow it to eat him. But they do not. They stand up to him, and this is Richie's moment (laughs) where he comes running at him. They break Bill free and fight Pennywise. He's mortally wounded and cornered by the losers. Bill tells it he knows it needs their fear to survive, and they're now going to starve the creature by not being afraid. Instead, it is the one who's afraid now. Knowing he has no more power over them, Pennywise escapes into the deep pit. At the very end, we see Bill discover George's yellow raincoat. And that's when he finally accepts his brother's death and emotionally breaks down, but the group is there to comfort him. Yeah, and this is when the group, in essence, conquer their fears. Mike is able to finally kill a cow. Yeah. Actually, he did it it previously. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, when he took the gun before he came and had the showdown with Henry. But yeah, they are all starting to kind of work up their courage throughout these last few scenes. Yeah, you see... Eddie get rid of his medicine. That's right. His allergy pills and the mm-hmm. asthma inhaler he's been using. That apparently were fake anyways. Or at least some of it. Yeah. yeah, he said the group stood up to his mother. Yeah, <laughs> it was that's very right. cute. And then we have another part that was kind of left open-ended. All the dead children started to float down. And I was like, oh, are they going to be alive? But apparently not, because we do see a month later that they're not there. I think but they were just officially dead. Okay. But, they're no longer part of the power source, I guess. 
why was they why were they able to bring Bev back then? I don't know. If we have Clatchers who read the book, they must be <laughs> screaming at us right now. <laughs> well, uh, I will definitely be sure to go and read it now and see what I missed if it makes more sense, and I'll be ready for the sequel. But we have one final scene. One month later, Bev informs the group of a vision she had while catatonic, where she saw them fighting the creature as adults. The losers then form a blood oath that they will return to Derry in 27 years if it returns and destroy the creature once and for all. Beverly tells Bill she is moving to live with her aunt in Portland. Before she leaves, Bill finally reveals his feelings and they kiss. So they're moving on with their lives. Some of them are leaving town. They seem better, but we know that... It's going to come back. Yeah, because they didn't kill him. And I don't know if you can kill him. uh, That's what I was going to say. Can you kill him? Because they took away... His fear, mm-hmm. now he was going into hibernation without that. How does he manage to survive the next 27 years? Yeah, if he was indeed feeding off of those dead children, they're gone now because they're not, they're not floating anymore, right? But maybe he just sucked up enough while he was here, and that's what he does, so he's he good. Had, <laughs> well, he did say, I have one more death, and then I leave. So, yeah, I guess so. So this leaves me with a lot of questions about Pennywise, the ones I've already gone over, but also... How was he created? Where does he come from? I think that's a bit of those scenes that were cut that we didn't get his okay. origin story, maybe in the second film. But Muschietti did talk about a little more in depth some of the themes of the story, including Pennywise. He describes the film as a loss of innocence story with fear, mortality, and survivalist films. So he said it's a coming of age, issues of mortality. You know, these themes were all prevalent in King's book, though in reality they occur in a more progressive way. He says there's a passage in it that reads, being a kid is learning how to live, and being an adult is learning how to die. He also mentioned the characterization of Pennywise's survivalist attitude and a passage in the novel that inspired him when Bill wonders if Pennywise is eating children simply because that is what people are told monsters do. It's a tiny bit of information, but that sticks with you so much. Maybe it is real, as long as children believe in it. And in a way, Pennywise's character is motivated by survival. In order to be alive in the imagination of children, he has to keep killing. I mean, maybe that's just his take on it, too, but I think that makes a lot of sense. This is his own survival at stake. If they no longer fear him, he'll cease to exist. But then why 27 years he comes back? That's just how long he can last without it? I don't know. I, that's what I mean. Maybe that the sequel will kind of get into this more because it seems like Muschietti has a good grasp on it and where he wants to go. You know, we keep talking about this 27 years, and this is weird, and we don't have an, an answer for this, but it's something that was brought up, and there is no reasoning. But 27 is a number that often becomes associated with this story. This movie was released 27 years after the original television release. In the book, it is mentioned that it returns to Derry approximately every 27 years. Jonathan Brandis, who played young Bill in the original film, died at 27 years old. Yeah, it's pretty dark. And Uh, I'm not sure if they just meant it to be one of those horror movie things where numbers have significance and who that's scary, perhaps. Yeah. But I do think there's probably a lot more to be had from the source material. And I'll, I'll let you know once I read it if it kind of brings some answers to it. For now, we found some differences in our research from the Stephen King book to the movie adaptation. According to this article, this is what they say the big ones are. First, the time frame that we mentioned. The book was set in the late 1950s, whereas the movie takes place in 1989. How the monster reveals itself to the losers... So the book manifestations included a werewolf, the gill man, the mummy, and Frankenstein's monster. Like I said, they were modeled after mostly movie creations of the time. Some of the newly introduced ones for the movie were the painting of the lady and Mike's burned parents. So the barons, they played a much bigger role in the books. We do see them, and he talks about them, Bill, when he's doing his map and trying to figure that out. But in the movie, the house really plays more of the essential role. I guess the Bowers gang also plays a bigger role in the books than in the movie. Though I thought we got quite a bit of them I thought we got enough of them, actually. There was the confrontation in the sewers, and in the movie, the whole group goes after Bev. I guess it was different in the books. And finally, the alternating timelines that we mentioned. So all in all, I really enjoyed it. Let's get to our ratings. 
we're going to do it on a scale of 1 to 10 monsters. And apparently that's how they refer to its manifestations more commonly in the books. We don't hear so much about that in the movies. But what do you give it? I'm going to go with 7.9 monsters. Mm -hmm. As a horror movie goes, I really enjoyed it. And I hate horror movies. I was scared just enough. The storyline was great, though had some holes in it. But it's a horror movie. You can expect some holes. Pennywise, as a bad guy goes, was amazing. The only other clown that I was more scared to look at, just look at, was the clown from American Horror Stories. But Bill Skarsgård, the way he plays Pennywise, was worth the movie alone. Never mind how great the child acting was. So for me, a 7.9 for a horror movie is like saying a 10. That's really good, yeah. Well, I'm going to give it a 7.5, Monsters. Close to yours, I normally would be higher on a scary movie. It does take a lot to scare me, and I've kind of brought up the issues that I had with this and the most frightening scene being the very first one. And then they did kind of take a longer hiatus to establish the dynamics of the group in between, which I really enjoyed, but it did it pulled me away from the fear factor. You know, I don't have an answer for this, and I probably shouldn't bring it up. I should have researched this, but I didn't think about it. Do you remember what your rating was for a cure for wellness? I don't, but I have to imagine it was lower than that. It had to be, right? I, I hope thought, so. I thought less of it. And if yeah. not, I'll give this a bump up <laughs> to make it more fair because I definitely liked it more than that. Although there were some elements of a cure for wellness that I that were really enjoyed. Yeah. So that had much higher highs and much lower lows. This rode the middle a lot more for me. Except for that scene with Georgie in the beginning, right? Right. That was really, really that great. Was sick. But I didn't, after that, ever think... This is phenomenal, or this is terrible. I was like, oh, this is really good. I'm pretty scared. I like the story um, better than average. So, yeah, 7.5. And on to MVL. Who is your most valuable loser? Okay, I'm going to go obvious with this, but I'm going to twist it a little bit. I'm not even going to say Pennywise. I'm going to say Bill Skarsgård. Oh, good. I think he did a brilliant job on this. No, he's not in the Losers Club, but I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought you were going to go with Ben, which is my answer. So I'm happy you didn't. I thought he was smart, mature, courageous. His character was acted really well. I felt a lot of empathy for him myself. I was a little disappointed that it felt like both the group and the story of the movie dropped him off a little. But he had his heroic moment when they saved Bev and he was able to kiss her and bring her back to consciousness. So I enjoyed that. And I'm really excited to see what he does in the sequel. You know, that reminds me, it was all about Ben loving Beverly. And then at the end sequence, it's Bill who confesses his love to her. Well, she was falling for Bill from earlier on. So we see some of that flirtation, like when they're cleaning up the bathroom. She thought for a while it was him that wrote... That's right. That little love note to her. But when she asked him about it in the bathroom and he didn't know what she was talking about, she kind of realized, but yet she still liked him, was willing to go with that, which is kind of sad. She does recite it back to Ben when he kisses her to awaken her in the sewers. But it's just kind of like, oh, that's sweet, but I don't love you back. She loves Bill. Well, maybe Ben will be the new Pennywise in the sequel. No. You stole my girlfriend. You stole my girlfriend. The final thing we have to say is about the sequel. So in July, Machete revealed that the plan is to get production underway to it next spring, adding, we'll probably have a script for the second part in January of 2018. Ideally, we would start prep in March. Part one is only about the kids. Part two is about the characters 30 years later as adults with flashbacks to their childhood in 1989. That's great. So the kids may be back. So now we know the release date for the sequel is set for September 6th, 2019. Very close to my birthday. So that'll be a fun celebration. And of course, we do know that it looks like Andy will be the director for this one as well. And Skarsgård is returning as Pennywise. So all in all, I did uh, poop myself a little bit. (laughs) But that might have been the dinner we had before the movie. And you guys saw a picture of that as well. I did drink a good amount, which was counterintuitive because I left the movie forgetting a lot of things. 
because I was a little buzzed in the beginning. I thought it was going to make you more scared, but I don't think that was the case. No. Well, we did have, again, an empty theater. This place that we go to, we've talked about it before. It's very old. It's very beautiful, very regal, and always very empty. And I don't know this, how they're still open. For this type of movie that made it even scarier, yeah. I liked it. There was only one other group of people in this movie theater, and it was three or four girls. But what was funny was instead of screaming, they laughed a lot. And you can tell it was like nervous giggles. And you thought they were girls because of how they were responding until the lights came on at the end. We turned around and saw they were at least our age, if not older. So we hope you guys also enjoyed this version of It. As I said, I am going to read the book and will report back later just vaguely on whether I enjoyed it and it answered any questions and how hyped it's going to get me for the sequel. Like always, we want to thank you so much for being a part of the Patreon crew. As we gear up for Mr. Robot, we will have a bonus and a movie review next month. Let us know what movies you are thinking about. Any thoughts for you on the table yet, Jason? I'm not sure what's coming out next month. I haven't looked that far forward yet. We'll keep you posted on the Patreon boards. Until next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. (laughs) 